Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to, to look at your word and ask you to guide and lead as we look at this chapter in Daniel and examine it and just that you will lead in, in all that we discuss about it. in your son's name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 11. This is known as the most detailed prophecy in all of the Bible because it is very precise. It is, as a matter of fact, so precise and we've talked about the four kingdoms and all of that material before, and they've, they've had problems with that. But this particular chapter is so clear in what it says after the fact that it is very much the one that they say had to have been written after the events happened. And so, but we want to tell you the good news for us is we know the book of Daniel was was recorded before the events happened because it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, bits and portions of it. This is one place that kind of got me. I read one place where it said that Daniel was not in the Septuagint, and then most of the places said Daniel was in the Septuagint. So if it's in the Septuagint, it was written before, definitely written before the events happened because uh, the Septuagint was commissioned in the, the uh, period of Philadelphus, the ruler, and we're talking about the rulers Philopater and Epiphanes. What's a Septuagint? What is that? Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, chapter in verse 1. Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will sh show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of the earth and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. And we're just going to stop there. So here Daniel is seen, he is in the time of the Medo-Persian Empire with Darius, as we've seen here, is what he says. And it says that there will be three, king, three more kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far great, uh, richer than he. Most people believe that this is talking about uh, Cambusa, uh, Bacchus, Darius, and Xerxes as the four kings of Persia, because he starts out with the Persian kings. Uh, it could mean that he also talked about Cyrus II as, as all, but Cyrus II was in the declining part of Persia. He was, not, he was not the wealthiest one. So Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, if you want to know him from his Esther title, is, is probably the fourth king, because he was actually the greatest of their kings as far as wealth and, and peace. We see Daniel, he's in the time of Darius, so there, he's saying there's going to be another king after Darius, and that'll be the fourth king, and the fourth one is going to be the riches. So that was actually a pretty easy prediction on that one. Uh, uh, but he says, he shall be the riches, and he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. Now, Xerxes or Artaxerxes and, and Cyrus II, they all decided they were going to try to take over Greek, the, Greece. They had already conquered most of the known world at that time. And remember, they went all the way to India, all the way down toward Egypt. So they decided they wanted to take and move west and north. And they stirred up Alexander the Great. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And that was a big mistake on their part because Alexander the Great decided that he was going to counterattack and he wipes them out. Okay. And this is what this next section is here. Their mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And Alexander the Great did just what he wanted. He, he moved back and forth. Nobody, nobody stood up against him. He had one of the first really professional armies. All the rest of them had some trained soldiers, but mostly they just picked up uh, people from the land and, and went out. Alexander the Great and then Rome after him are going to have professional armies. You, you went to be a soldier and you were trained to be a soldier. Uh, Alexander's army could, could turn the entire army within seconds to face a whole other direction. In most countries, it took you a long time. You couldn't re, refocus yourself. So Alexander did not get outflanked very often because of how fast he could turn his army. And so he did what he wanted. And then it says here in verse 4 that when he stood up, his kingdom would be broken and should be divided between the four winds of the heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for the kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides him. And this is a historical fact that when Alexander died in his early 30s, he did not leave it to an heir, didn't leave it to his posterity, and it went to his four generals. And we talked about them a couple weeks ago when we were dealing it, you know, so it's Ptolemy, Seleucid, uh, uh, Cassiander, and Licinius were the four kings. And the two that we're going to be talking about in this section is going to be Ptolemy, who ruled in Egypt, and the Seleucid dynasty, which covered most of the middle, uh, most of Asia Minor and on toward India. And these are the two, that are in, the, in this section, they're going to be called the, North, the, the northern king and the southern king. And unfortunately, Israel is between these two kingdoms <laughs> that keep wanting to fight. And we're going to see them fighting. Historically, that was true. And we're going to see Daniel predicting this running battle that's going to be going on between them. Daniel 11. And so we're, we're seeing Daniel, and this is part of the reason, I mean, this is now the third time he's talked about these four kingdoms and, and Greece being divided up. But this one's going to be very specific in how it affects Israel. This, this whole statement is going to be how it affects Israel in a big way. And we look at this, and the Ptolemaic dynasty is going to have Ptolemy, Soter, Lagus, Philadelphus, Eugrates, Philopater, and Epiphanes, who is the one who is going to be the main one that we talk about. He's, and then it had uh, Philomater. And in the Seleucid dynasty, we have Nicada, Antiochus. And Antiochus actually becomes a title for their kings. And then you have Soter, Theos, Callicus, Serranus. Antiochus the Great, uh, Seleucius, Philopater, Antiochus Epiphanius, and Eupater. And these are the, the major rule, these are the ones in those kingdoms. I'm just letting you know these things in case you want to, as we start talking about them, we're going to throw out some names and you're, you're wanting to know who they are. 
So we started with Xerxes, we ended up with Alexander, we ended up with the four generals, and now we're going to go into verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong in one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And Ptolemy was a great leader for Egypt. He's going to make Egypt a very strong place again. And uh, his descendants are going to be very strong. And this is what he's talking about. They're going to be a great dominion. They're going to be strong. They're not going to be somebody that's easily taken. Even though they're not equivalent to Alexander, they're, they are a very strong nation. Alexander's dead at this point, yes. We're on the fourth, his kingdom has been split up. And again, just as I said, we're not talking about, we're only talking about two of his generals in this, in this chapter, and that's going to be Ptolemy and his descendants, actually, and the Seleucid dynasty and, and, their, and their descendants. And there's going to be constant battle between these, these, two, these two kings. Well, we're talking, this is going to cover close to 100 and 200 years. But at the moment, we're just, he's setting up the stage for what's coming. Uh, Because we don't know exactly which kings in some of these cases they're talking about. Uh, Because in the next verse, we're already going to be on Philadelphia, which is three generations away from Ptolemy and uh, from, from Seleucid. So we're going to move very quickly, so we're already going to be 40 to 60 years in when we get to verse 6. To the I have to believe that the Israelites that God used um, all of these military events to train them. You had said that they weren't really strong on a military level prior. So Alexander's experience really did teach people. You said that was a well, he had a professional army. It has nothing to do for the Hebrews, though. The Jews, the Jews aren't benefiting at all from Alexander's rule. Not even how to fight? No, they're a captive. They're a vassal. They, they are in the middle. Matter of fact, they're not even a country, basically, at this point. They're just being a land being swept back and forth. And we're going to, when we see this and we look at history, they get swept back and forth over these, over these countries going back and forth. It's almost, if you know American history in the Civil War, if you were in Maryland or Virginia, you technically were on the rebel or, or uh, Yankee side, but the war went back and forth across your territory, and those were the two battlegrounds of the Civil War, primary battlegrounds of the Civil War, and it just kept going back and forth. You know, one side would win, win, win you know, three or 400 miles, and then the other side would push them back for three or 400 miles or more, and it kept going back and forth. This is exactly what's going to happen to Israel in the middle of all of this and uh, we're going to see at the end how they are plundered completely and this is going to take us into the Maccabean period at the end of this chapter toward the end of this chapter so all right verse 6 and in the end of the years they shall join themselves together for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain power of arms, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they, should, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. And this is very complex, but we're going to talk about this. King Philadelphus's daughter 
whose name is Bernice, is one of the few women in history that we know anything about, especially in ancient history, was given to be married to uh, King Theos in the north. And part of that agreement was that he says, we're, gonna, we're going to make an agreement, I'm going to give you my daughter, and you've got to put away your current wife. King Theos puts away his wife, gets poisoned. <laughs> uh, she takes back over the, you know, somewhat authority and bring, puts her son in place. And they chase Bernice out of the kingdom where she is later poisoned by people. Okay, so it's kind of an amazing thing when the, the accuracy of this statement is that you know, before it's even, you know, years before it happens, is the king of the south is going to give you his daughter, which wouldn't have been that big a deal. I mean, that happened all the time. Kings changed daughters and said, you know, you know I'm going to give you my, my, my daughter or my sister or whoever to make an agreement. It was not, that wasn't a very big part of this. Uh, but to say that it was not going to do any good and that she was not going to be able to stay was quite a, quite a prediction. This is prophetic. This is prophetic at the time. And this is why we say this one is very, very specific. And that's why a lot of people say it's because of how specific it is, they have a hard time believing that it's prophetic. Okay? And so you're going to hear people tell you, and, this is, and you're understanding the reason. I mean, this is, this is not somebody will rise up and maybe, you know, this is the king of the south is going to give you the daughter and, she's not going to, and it's not going to work. And she's going to be cut off. All right, and so we see this whole uh, statement of here, you know, she shall be given up. They will get rid of her, and they that brought her, and that they begot her and, and strengthened her in those times. And then it goes on, but the branch of her root shall stand up for, for her estate, and there, and there shall come an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. Her brother retaliated <laughs> okay she was sent up there to be married to Philadelphia uh, to um, Theos and her brother came back and retaliated to basically using her as the reason for it but they were always fighting anyway <laughs> and remember we have Egypt in the south we have Syria and further in the north and poor Israel is right between these guys all the time every time they want to fight there, Israel is between the two of them. And they go back and forth over Israel, usually just marching through, but that does enough damage. But anytime there was a long, long battle of pushing them back, they are going to be in the center of this. And it says, and they shall carry captives into Egypt, their gods and their princes and their precious vessels of silver and gold and continue more years than the king of the north. Bernice's brother goes up, he conquers the city, and he removes the gods and the silver and the gold that happened to have been conquered by Persia and Babylon many years before that. If you remember when, when Babylon took Jerusalem, they took all the utensils for the temple and up to Babylon and when Cyrus sent them back, he took the treasures out of the temple and sent them back with the treasures of the temple. Well, Jerusalem wasn't the only place they had done this. 
All right. When they had conquered Egypt, they had stripped their gold and their, and their temples and took it up there. So when Eurgeets, Bernice's brother, went up there and conquered them, he takes the silver back. He takes the gods back. He, he sets up all of this, all of this uh, money that he brings back, and they're going to rule for many years uh, because of this. He's going to reign... He is going to reign for 25 years, and he brings back a lot of, of captives with him from the north. And this is something we see happening very frequently in these battles. You conquered the city. You spoiled the city. You took all of the royal family. You either killed them or brought them back to your territory, and you took the wealthy people, and you left just the, the poor people. And this is what he's doing. He's, taking, he's going to take a lot of people captive and bring them back to Egypt. And basically he's saying we're stronger than you are and we're taking the best of who you have. But he didn't get all the royal family because they're going to have more royal family who's going to come back and get him. <laughs> come back in retaliation. It's kind of like when you read this, it's almost like reading a, a, a soap opera or something. You know, it's like this happened, this happened, this happened, this person went up here and, you know, and it gets to be kind of a a back and forth story and you know it's no it's a great story it's great history it's a great story great history but he is going to rule for 25 years he brings back all the the gold you know probably not all but he brings back the gold of Egypt and probably plus because he's he's now plundering their city but he's coming back with a great wealth and it says so shall the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. So he returns from his battle and he gets to return. And it says, but his son shall, son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude, great multitude of forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through them until he return and be stirred up even his fortresses. And this is the son of, of uh, Euripides becomes Philopater and... He is going to raise up a very large army to go attack the southern kingdom. And when we talk about a great army, and it tells us in history that Philopater had 70,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. I don't know why they mentioned the elephants, but that was, I guess that was novel to them. And Antiochus is going to have 62,000 foot soldiers, 6,000 cavalry, and 112 elephants. Elephants were really popular back there. They were almost the equivalent of tanks during that period of time uh, because they didn't really respond. You couldn't, they didn't get cut as easy and nobody wanted to stand up against them. So, but we see this great army being developed and he's going, and Philio Potter is going to come against this um, Antio Antiochus. And so we're going to, we're going to see a battle developing here. And Antiochus and Philopater are going to be very strong combatants through the rest of this chapter. They're going to be back and forth, battles after one another. Verse 11 says, And the king of the south shall move with choler or bitterness and anger, and shall come forth and fight with him, and the king of the, even with the king of the north, and he shall... Set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. So in verse 10, we have, let me get these, make sure I get these guys, kings right, because I, 
Uh, yes. He is south, he is north. <laughs> we have Philopater coming and he, he attacks and he actually pushes almost all the way to Egypt's capital and finally gets stopped. Antiochus gets so angry and so upset with him that he gathers a whole bunch of army men, army back and he attacks and he pushes, he pushes Philopater <laughs> back almost to his capital. And that means Israel's sitting in between for two, for two directions on this, on this battle. And it says that Philopater, when he was winning over Antiochus, he had killed 10,000 of their people and took captive 4,000. He was not, there was a, this was a huge loss of life out of this battle. And so we see them and then Antiochus gets really upset and he pushes back hard and he pushes Philopater back and outmaneuvers him and pushes him back. And in verse 12 it says, And when they have taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up and he shall be cast down many thousands and he shall not be strengthened. Antiochus, even though he won this battle, and they finally made a truce, and he took a bunch of tribute from, from the north, Antiochus had, was a person who wanted to live in great luxury and was lazy, and he taxed his people to a point where they rebelled against him. <laughs> he crushed the rebellion, but it cost him a lot of his men to crush the rebellion. So again, we see here, he won the battle, he cast down tens of thousands of the enemy, but he didn't get stronger in the process because of his, his lifestyle, brought rebellion from his people, and it cost him a lot to, to crush this rebellion. So again, we see this very clear, <laughs> clear statement. He won, but he really didn't win any strength. And usually, you know, this, when you would read this out there at first, it's like, well, how do you win a battle and not come out, strong, you know, come out stronger? Because you, you've defeated an enemy, you should be stronger. And so this was one of those things where a little, little loop was thrown in there. Here, here it is. It doesn't make sense, but here's the answer. It's kind of like when the, when, uh, the king was taken into Babylon and, and Jeremiah said that he, was, he, would, he would go to Babylon and then another, and the other prophet said he would never see Babylon. Well, he never saw Babylon because his eyes were taken out of his head before he made it to Babylon. So he never saw Babylon even though he was in Babylon. And for years people going, this doesn't make sense. How can you go to Babylon and not see it? So this kind of, we see this kind of detailed prophecy all through the scripture. And this is one of the things is, as you said earlier, I mean, for us who knows that God knows the beginning from the end, this doesn't surprise us that it could be written ahead of time because God already knew what was going to happen and the Bible is full of very detailed prophecies. We look at the prophecies of Jesus' birth. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to go to Egypt, and he's going to be known as a Nazarene. You know, how, 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 could, you, how could all of that go, how could all of that happen? You know, because it's like, he's either from Bethlehem or he's from Nazarene. And what's he doing in Egypt? And, and we see the whole thing, how Herod's trying to kill him. And they, you know, they flee to Egypt and then they end up living in Nazareth. And it's like, there it is. We, we see all of the details that God puts in the Bible. And, he de and it's there to show us that he knows everything. 
He is the one that has all the answers. And nothing is going to surprise him. It's all in the Bible. There's thousands of scriptures that do prophecy, some, many of which are past, some that are still to come. But we can know the ones that are still to come are accurate because he's accurate in everything else that he tells us. And it's kind of amazing as we, as we look, we looked, in, we looked into the book of Revelation and we see all these different prophecies of what's going to happen. And, you know, we've told you that it used to be, people used to think it was symbolic that it said that the whole world was going to watch the, the, the two witnesses and watch them as they lay dead and then watch them be resurrected. And I can tell you, it used to be for years that people, and probably a millennia or more, that people would say, oh, that's just impossible. It has to be symbolic. You know, they're using, they're using hyperbole. You know, they're just expanding. It's, it's most people or a lot of people. And now we, now we can picture a satellite channel, you know, 24-7, watch these dead, dead witnesses lying, <laughs> lying at the door of the, of the temple. You know, and we can say, yes, we know exactly how it would happen now. And there's much of prophecy that we're seeing that, okay, it used to be something far-fetched, and now we say, oh, it's understandable. We can understand how this can happen. And so here we are looking at this, and it says that he doesn't get strengthened even though he wins this battle and the people are, are there. Verse 13, for the king of the north shall return, and this, by the way, is 13 years later from the, from the previous battle, according to history. And shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and much riches. So 13 years later, we have the northern kingdom coming back against the southern kingdom. So we have Antiochus, and this is still Antiochus, because he's going to be their main character through the rest of this, rest of this uh, time. And he attacks the southern kingdom, or, or Egypt, if you want to think of it in that term. In verse 13, and in those times shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of your people shall exalt themselves and establish a vision, but they shall fail. And this is one of the many rebellions of Israel coming in and saying, we're going to rebel. And this is something that we see in history for Israel during this period of time. We have the Maccabeans who are the most well-known of the rebels. We have uh, Barnabas, who's released for Jesus, who was, uh, was a rebel. And then we have Jesus. During this period of time, there were many rising up and saying they are the Messiah. They're coming up and saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to deliver us from, at this time, the Greeks. Later on, it's going to be the Romans. <laughs> and so there's all these people that keep coming up and saying, we're the deliverer. And they would gather an army and fail. And this is referring to one of those failed attempts. And we're getting close to the Maccabean period because Maccabees and, the, and Antiochus Epiphanes was in that same period. They're going to rise up and he, they're going to be the one that actually ends up getting everything destroyed or they rise up at the time he's destroying. Those are familiar. Those are, fami those are ones we know. We know them from different history. We know them from a little bit from the uh, New Testament. Um, the Maccabean period is the whole reason for the celebration of Hanukkah because they lit the menorah and it, and it burned for seven days with enough oil, eight days for, with enough oil for one day. And 
then we know that was between before Jesus, and by the time Jesus was born, he, he, there is one reference that he celebrated Hanukkah. Okay, it's called the Festival of Lights, and it just kind of little little blurb in there that he went, that he celebrated, the, you know, was there for the Festival of Lights, which is Hanukkah, and so, but we see this little reference to God's people standing up and and being defeated. And they're going to do this several times during Antiochus's reign and others before that, but they do it at least twice in Antiochus's reign. And so we see here in verse 15, And so the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the, the most fenced cities and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. And the chosen people are God's people or Israel and Antiochus is going to put up all kinds of cities and nothing stands in his way on this, on this campaign until he gets right up, against, uh, right up against Egypt again and gets pushed back. There's, there's this, this idea that when people stand up for their own city, there's usually that fanaticism that goes back and they tend to win even in modern days. You may, you may be conquering everything, but you get to somebody's home city and, and all of a sudden there's like, we're not letting you have our capital and this keeps happening back and forth with the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty. Children well, whatever they, they get to, the, they get close to the capital, and all of a sudden they get pushed back. And so we see that we see that here. And verse sixteen: But he that comes against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land which by his hand he shall consume, which is Israel. The glorious land is Israel. And, he's, and Antiochus is going to reign over Israel. And we're getting ready to see his, what's called the, des, uh, the desecration of the temple. He's going to be coming very soon and, and pictured here. And when we get to there, there's almost a split between the prophecies where we talk about Antiochus, Epiphanes, and it seems to be picturing the Antichrist because there's places where it doesn't totally fit Antiochus. So we believe that it's a dual uh, prophecy and that happens a lot in the scriptures where they where we have an immediate partial fulfillment of a prophecy and a long-term uh, picture of the prophecy. When Isaiah said a virgin shall give birth to, to the deliverer, it was very shortly thereafter that a young woman who had just been married gave birth to a child, and that was the immediate answer to that prophecy. And then later on, Jesus was born of a virgin for the actual prophetic part of it. So this happens a lot of times in the scripture, that God has the immediate answer and later. So we, um, we won't argue much about whether it's uh, Antiochus or the Antichrist because there's a dual picture there. Verse 17, and he also shall set his face to enter into the strength of the whole kingdom and upright ones with him and he shall do and he shall give him the daughter of women corrupting her but she shall not stand on his side neither be for him. So in verse 17 we see another daughter being given in marriage. This time it's from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And the daughter that he gives him is, is one who had great beauty and is going to have daughters of great beauty. 
and her name is Cleopatra of Syria, not the Cleopatra of history. <laughs> Everybody knows, but it is her great-grandmother who is given to, to this uh, individual. And she is given to Epiphanes, uh, and she's supposed to go in as a spy and, and, uh, and, and devoted to her father. She falls in love with her husband and turns against her father, <laughs> which is exactly what it says. She be, it says she shall be corrupted, and in other words, she changes sides, and shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. So she didn't even support her father. He sold her in, in, into this king's harem, basically. She fell in love with him and said, I'm going to help my husband now, not my father. And, uh, and she is later on going to give, you know, she is the, the great-grandmother of the Cleopatra who becomes queen of, queen of, uh, queen of Egypt and, and uh, has all the dalliances with the emperors of, of Rome that are going to be in the future. But I just wanted to make sure we understood it. You know, if you hear that this is Cleopatra, it is Cleopatra, but not the one that most people think of. I listened to a pastor just the other day who was trying to say, you know, bring this Cleopatra to, to the Cleopatra of Rome, and I'm going, that doesn't fit. Wrong time frame. He just saw the word Cleopatra and immediately jumped to the historic one. There are actually four women named Cleopatra that follow that line, finally become the ruler of Egypt. Yeah, well, she would have been groomed to be, you know, this. Uh, Solomon got into trouble because of all the women he took for alliances. And this was not uncommon to take wives for an alliance. You know, they were the princess of such and such place went there. And it, was, it had a dual purpose, is that it hopefully you gave, you gave birth to somebody who would then be tie your kingdom together and maybe join with their you know, their father, their grandfather or some, I, the idea was that, you know, you're tying yourselves together as a family, not just as a people, and maybe that one would give, give in and trade, you know, trade into the other one. Usually didn't work that way. Because this is so detailed and this is so much part of history, you can't just say this happened. We have to kind of tie the names in with things and this is what happened. And so now we have two women that we've seen that both did exactly what it said they were going to do. The first one got cut off from her queenly duties and was chased out and then was revenged. And now this one we have that goes in supposedly supporting her father turns against him. It's exactly what it says it's going to do. Verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face unto the isles and shall take many, but a prince of, for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. And this is Antiochus deciding to attack the islands of Greece. So again, he's going to turn around and he's going to march back up north and start working toward Greece. He's going to fail. Verse 19. Then he shall turn his face toward the, toward the fort of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and not be found. After he gets pushed back again by Greece... He decides to pull back and just fortify his own land. He stops being quite as aggressive. During this period of time, it, it tells us that he attempted, just before his life is ended, to plunder the temple of Jupiter. And he's going to fail. And he's going to die on that time. But he's, he's trying to live in luxury. He's going to plunder everything he finds. He, the temples are not sacred to him. He goes into temples and takes away all the wealth of the temples. In most of these people's battles, the temples have always been kind of off limits. 
They, they represent a god and they're not wanting to destroy the gods because they don't want to anger the gods. <laughs> For Antiochus, he thinks he's greater than everything and he, he goes and he plunders temples and, and we're going to see them doing that in Jerusalem as well. He's going to plunder the, the temple in Jerusalem and take all the wealth of, the, of those temples. But this is the type of man he is. He is very clearly a strong picture of the Antichrist. He is one who believes himself to be greater than the gods. He will declare that, you know, he declares a modest degree of, of allegiance to Jupiter, but he also is willing to plunder the temples and, and declare that he's the one to worship, and he's going to tell people who, and, who they can worship, who they can't worship, and that's what he does in Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes. Or, and Antiochus is actually a title. But he's the most famous of the Antiochuses. And then it says in verse 20, And he shall stand up in his estate a razor of taxes and the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger or in battle. And so we're going to see that he, his son is going to be known as a razor of taxes, and his son is known in history as somebody who taxed his people to the point of even the rebellion and he ends up being poisoned uh, because of the people that are coming against him. And that's just a quick note in there and then we're going to go back to Antiochus here. <laughs> so, but again, we see this picture of it. Uh, Antiochus himself taxed his people pretty hard, but it's almost like Jericho. Uh, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam, when he took over for, for Solomon, and the, and the people go, we, we would really like you to uh, lower our taxes. Your dad has really taxed us bad. And, and Solomon taxed the people very harshly. And if you remember, uh, his answer was, you think my father was bad. You know, he, he, used, he punished you with whips. I'm going to use scorpions. His, his little finger, his waist will be like my little finger. You know, you know, I'm going to just push you hard. Antiochus' son did the same thing to his people, and they rebelled. And even in Solomon's, uh, in Rehoboam's day, they rebelled, and Jeroboam took the ten kingdoms in the north, and Rehoboam got the two kingdoms in the south of Jerusalem. And so this is something that has happened over and over again, and we see this happening. And then it says, verse 21, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, in whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, and he shall come in peacefully and attain the kingdom by flatteries. Antiochus Epiphanes, was, had, they say, had no claim to the throne. He was not of the royal family. He, he somehow came from a commoner, a commoner. And it's said that his people, he had the name Epiphany, which means mighty one, and the people called him uh, imuna, imuna, which means insane one. <laughs> uh, so they, they were quite bold to talk about their king in a very harsh, <laughs> harsh manner. Uh, but it says that he raised up, and he didn't raise up through battle. He raised up through manipulation and, and flattery and buying, buying this. And this is going to be his way of doing things all the way through this. And this takes us back to the whole thing of sending his daughter Cleopatra down there to try to have an insight on what was going on in the, in the Egyptian king, because now he has reason. He's going to go visit his daughter, and she can talk to him and tell him about what's happening until she turns her back on him. 
It's it's court intrigue. It's 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 uh, uh, intrigue. We're going to see that they're going to keep doing this to each other as well. They're, they're, neither one of these guys are very honest people. Uh, they're very much, they'll tell you one thing and do another. And we're going to see this all the way through the end of the chapter, that this happens over and over and over again. Uh, verse 22, And with the arms of the flood they shall be overflown before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. And so here we see this, they keep going back and forth. They're going to tell each other, but they're going to overthrow. And when he makes a covenant, he breaks the covenant. Uh, he's a person that nobody trusts. You know, they probably trust him for the first covenant or two, and then he breaks it. In many ways, like the United States, when they made covenants with Indians over the years, you know, it's like, you know, they, they had this idea that, you know, the, you know, our word to an Indian isn't worth anything, and they would make covenants with the Indians. The Indians would trust them, and then they would go attack the Indians while they were under truce and you know but again this whole idea that there's nothing new under the sun and we keep bringing this up nothing is new everything that we everything that happens has happened in the past and will happen again in the future if, if the Lord tarries long enough these all these things will happen again and we know that this covenant breaker will happen again because the Antichrist is going to make covenants he's going to bring this apparent peace he's going to make peace with with Israel and, and make them think that they've got everything they want and then do exactly what Antiochus does and stand up in the temple and say, I'm God. And all of a sudden they'll realize that they've been tricked and lied to and, and that basically they'll go back and say, we've got another Antiochus here. <laughs> so, and, uh, but we know that at least one more time this covenant breaker is going to show up, if not many times before then. Because we have all these, all these nations that write, write up all these different things and they always end up breaking their, breaking their word. At least somebody breaks their word. And the honest, the honest entity suffers because of it. And it says here that he's going to enter peacefully. Uh, he's going to make leagues, but he's going to break them. And this is not a good place to be. He'd already had this happen with his daughter and his plan on breaking breaking that covenant with the, with the king and it didn't work out and he's making covenants with all these little places. And he takes, and he, for a long while, he may, he's winning battles by doing little covenants and then taking the town. Make a covenant, breaking, you know, and taking the town. This is the way he conquered for a while as he started approaching the south again. Uh, he got to be well known as a liar. Uh, you know, Let's see, verse 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, and he shall come up, and he shall become strong with small people. And this is that idea. He keeps breaking the covenants with these people. He would come to these small towns, basically saying, I'm going to protect you. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to we'll protect you. And then when they, had to, had a, they thought he had their back, he would and conquer them. And he was doing this with a very small army. He was looking like he was being peaceful. As he's encroaching upon Egypt, he's looking peaceful. So he would come in with just a couple, you know, a couple of uh, tens of thousands of men and make these covenants and kind of move on like he's moving on and then come back and, and conquer their city with the small, you know, when they, were, when they thought they were at peace. Uh, so he was a very cruel, you know, snake. Yeah, that's a good idea. He was a snake. And he was being very subtle, very, very tricky. Uh, he didn't wasn't an honest person. 
at, in any way, shape, or form. And verse 24, And he shall enter peacefully upon the fattest places of the providence, and he shall do which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the, the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time. And again, it's this idea, going in with devices, the promises, and you know, being honest. And he, By the way, this makes it sound like he spread a little bit of money around on the covenants, and then he took it right back again when he conquered them. But he's like, here, have, have, have some good, you know, I'm going to help you build the city, build, you know, build streets, build, you build up your thing, and then he conquered them. Uh, this wasn't a man that you didn't want to turn your back on. And the only reason he probably got away with it was because he conquered everybody and nobody was left to go, you know, go toward the direction he was going to talk to them. Uh, there was no TV broadcast of his battles, no, no TV, the internet reports on what he was doing no so yeah <laughs> so he was able to get away with this uh, in verse 25 and he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army so as he got close he decided to come with a great army and the king of the south shall be stirred up to do battle with a very great and mighty army but they shall not but he shall not stand for they shall forecast his vices against him history tells us that they had four long protracted wars or battles, a series of battles over this period of time with the great armies pushing back and forth. And so we have four big battles going one way, the other way, one way, the other way. And again, remember, Israel is in the center of this whole mess. Geographically, Geographically in the center. They're not, they're not trying to be in this. They're just, you know, they're trying to stay out of this, but it, uh, they're in a bad position. They are on the trade routes. You know, there's only, there's only three, three roads that go that direction, and they are in the center of one of them. So if you're going to take one of the, you know, one of the roads takes you right through the center of Jerusalem. The other one takes you real close to Jerusalem. And the other one, the longer one that they weren't taking, would have been running along the Mediterranean. And that would not have been the one that you're trying to run your army down. You're not running them all the way out to the, to the Mediterranean and coming down the coast. You were going on the two that were close to Jerusalem and right through Israel. So Israel is in a bad place for these wars to, to be going on. And these two, are, these two kingdoms are battling, and poor Israel is in the center of them. Verse 26, And yea, they shall feed a portion of his meat, shall they destroy him, and his army shall be overthrown, and many shall fall down. So it's, again, this whole battle. Uh, Antioch is riding down to conquer them. Many are dying in this process. And there's a couple places where the Seleucid Empire, uh, the, excuse me, the Potomac Empire thought they were going to have a win. And the counselors of the king gave him bad advice, and he started taking big defeats. And this is what I was talking about. You're, you're being destroyed from within. Okay. He got bad advice and he took some very serious defeats and uh, it was a bad place for him bad time for him and both of these kings shall do mischief they shall speak lies to one at one table and they shall not prosper and yet the end shall be at the time appointed so they get together again to start making a truce and basically lie to each other both of, the, both of these nations were known for their lies and their double dealings and their treachery and all of this. And 
We see here that they're trying to make another treaty. Okay? Now both of them have tried to make a treaty including daughters, <laughs> and now they're here to make another treaty. And this happens all the time when a country gets tired of war, even when they're winning and they're just tired of war, it's taken its toll, they're finally ready to sit down and try to make a truce. And this is where they're at. These guys have been battling now for a long time because we're pushing from 320 and we're pushing now into the 200s BC. So they have been fighting for a long time with little, little rests in between during some of these smaller treaties, but they have been fighting 100, 100 plus years by this time. Things are getting tired and their kingdom is starting to, starting to suffer from all this battle. And at this exact time, Rome is conquering all of Europe and coming their way. All right? So we've got these guys battling amongst themselves, weakening themselves up, and we've got Rome now starting to come in. And Rome is already working with Egypt. They're making alliances with Egypt as well during this period of time. And they're going to come to the rescue of the Egyptian, uh, the uh, Ptolemaic dynasty, <laughs> and push back on, on uh, Antiochus Epiphanes here real, real soon in this study. All right. Let's do, we're going to do verse 30. No, we're not going to do 30. We're going to stop here because I don't want to get into 30 at the moment. Didn't I read that? No. Okay. Oh, all right. Because I'm going to stop at 30. We're not going to go past 30. Then shall he return into his own land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his land. So he's leaving, when he does leave from all this truce, he's leaving with the riches that they took just a little while back ago. He's going back with a lot of silver and gold. Maybe not everything that they took, but he's, he's going back rich. And remember, one of the things that, when, especially when you were in the, the winning side, you could demand high tribute from these people. And they would say, fine, we'll give you lots and lots of gold, just leave us alone. And so he's headed back with the wealth that he's dealing with. And he's going to do great exploits, which we're going to look into later. And at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. And it shall not be as the former or latter time. So he's not coming in the same <coughs> battle, battle format as, as later on but it is predicted that he's going to return. And we're going to stop there because I really don't want to get into, we don't have time to play with the, the destruction of Jerusalem, which it gets into next. But uh, we just want to be able to look at this and say there's a lot of stuff here that we're dealing with, a lot of history that we're dealing with. And again, this is, you see how precise this is and how detailed this is, which is why people will tell you that it just couldn't have been predicted. It had to have been, you know, written after the fact. But again, God is able to do this because he knows it's not something that's a surprise for him. It's not something that is unknown to him because he knows the beginning from the end. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and look at your word and, and just the precision of your prophecies and just ask you to help us as we go forward in, in looking at this and knowing how powerful you are in your son's name. Amen.